Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's women in the academy and professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and our guest for this episode of All Shall Be Well is Dr. Joyce Del Rosario. Joyce recently earned her PhD at Fuller Theological Seminary's School of Intercultural Studies, where her research focused on Mary, mother of Jesus, and how she impacts new models for mission with marginalized groups like teen moms. I so appreciate what Joyce brings to the table and hope that you'll be encouraged and challenged by our conversation as well. So thank you so much, Joyce, for taking the time to be on the podcast today. To begin, can you share a little bit about yourself, perhaps a little bit of your spiritual journey, as well as how you ended up in your current vocation? Yeah, I'd love to. A little bit about myself. I was born here in Los Angeles, where I am now, and moved to Seattle early on. And I so most of my life has been grown up. I, I grew up in Seattle, Washington. In predominantly, well, in, in both immigrant neighborhoods earlier on in my elementary and middle school life. And then we moved to more um, suburban white neighborhoods. And so we remained going to church at a Filipino United Methodist Church in Seattle in the more immigrant neighborhood at the time. It's been gentrified by Amazon since. So I kind of lived in both worlds from the beginning. So church at, for me was always, that was where family, it was a Filipino American United Methodist Church. So that was family for me. And then when we were with family, we talked about church and when mm-hmm. we were at church, we talked about family. And so everyone at church was an auntie and an uncle. My ethnicity, my culture, my spirituality, all of it is wrapped up together. That kind of explains a lot of, I think, who I am today. And and then moving out to the suburbs and, and being one of the few, either people of color or in particular Filipinos, I you know, had to learn how to navigate what does that mean in all the other places right in my life so yeah that's a, a good general sense of where I've been let's see I I mean quick spiritual journey it, it developed right as kind of most American kids right we're going to youth group kind of stuff sort of even though youth group for us didn't look as formal as maybe other youth groups because it was an auntie and then my cousins or people mm-hmm. I called my cousins maybe they weren't formally related to me And then I started getting involved in the Methodist church to a national level at a pretty early age. And then by college, I walked away from Jesus altogether. And then a couple of years later, came back to the Lord and sort of ended up in in a more evangelical setting at that point. And that, you know, I started with Young Life and I was doing volunteer ministry with Young Life at that point. Yeah, went to seminary, Princeton Theological Seminary, because I knew that my call was to be with youth, and my call was a, a lifetime vocational call to do ministry. And when I felt that call, I also was, I had a distinct, like, knowledge somehow that I wouldn't be able to do youth ministry, like, all the way through, but that I'd eventually be teaching it. Like, I knew the PhD, I knew teaching was going to be sort of my sort of retirement plan <laughs> from youth ministry, which that feels weird to say that I'm at that stage, but that's kind of how the PhD thing kind of, I, I, I always knew that was part of my journey um, from the beginning when, when God said, yeah, this is what you're going to do. You're going to focus on youth. The whole package came together. And so I always knew that teaching was going to be part of my life call. Yeah. That's kind of how after 15 years of full-time ministry, I felt released to go ahead and pursue the PhD. And so 
I did that. And, and that's kind of, I'm at the end of that 20 year call journey and looking forward to see whatever God has next. Yeah. Great. So you just finished up your PhD. Can you share a little bit about your dissertation and how, well, let me say congratulations first. Thank you. That's not a small deal. Yeah. Um, so yeah, can you share a little bit about your dissertation and how your research and work on that topic maybe shaped your own spiritual and theological formation at this stage? Yeah. So prior to starting the PhD, I was running a home um, for teen moms and their children in the Bay Area in East Palo Alto. And it felt like I had two different ministries as, as the executive director, right? I did of a small nonprofit. I, you know, I ha- had my hands in all the different positions. And so, you know, I, I would have a meeting with a VP from a tech company and in the same day, hang out with girls on government subsidies, right? So I, I had a pretty wide breadth of relationships. And my ministry to donors and to volunteers in Silicon Valley felt very different from my ministry to the teen moms that we were housing and that we were supporting in our outreach ministries and programs. And there was a disparity and I, and I felt like there was a big gap. There was obviously a cultural gap, obviously a socioeconomic gap, but I knew that there was probably something bigger. And so when I came into the PhD program for intercultural studies, one of the requirements is that you have five years, at least five years of fieldwork experience because they want you to have a question coming in. I think differently from other programs where you find out your question, you know, maybe two or three years into your, after your comps, um, your comprehensive exams. Uh, For us, we needed our question from day one. And so my question sort of ended up being, we were looking through the Vatican II documents and we got to Mary and there was this light bulb moment of, I remembered my professor from Princeton Seminary, Kendall Dean, had also, she did her dissertation on Mary, mother of Jesus. And somehow it connected with, oh yeah, and I worked with teen moms. And what does Mary mean to teen moms? And why don't Mm -hmm. we talk about her, particularly in the evangelical church? Like we only take her out of the Christmas decoration box, you know, during Advent. And then we put her back in and we never hear about her again until next December. And so that was the beginning of my research. I ended up with a new, or or I don't know about a new, but a new Mariology for Protestants based on women, womanism, sorry, based on her marginality in particular. And I used a lot of uh, womanist thought around it. And I called it liberative Protestant Mariology. And I used that theology to be the foundation for my social science research, which I did research on teen moms and their mentors. And I did an analysis of uh, the different ways that the mentors saw things I, I put up images of Mary and Jesus from all sorts of different cultural backgrounds and economic backgrounds. And I analyzed their responses to those images, to that artwork. Mm-hmm. And the teen moms had very different responses and than the mentors. And it was just fascinating. And so I combined the theological research and the social science research as a way to say, we need a new imagination for how we do ministry to people in the margins, particularly teen moms, because we've been looking at them sort of as charity and as other rather than as transforming agents in their community. And God saw Mary as a transforming agent before she even said yes. So it wasn't because she was obedient that she was Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was already called to be Mary, mother of Jesus. She was highly favored before right. she said yes. Yeah. So that's been my argument. And that that ended up being kind of the, and, and I analyzed what are the obstacles, you know, 
that keep the evangelical church from seeing teen moms more in their context. And so those are some of the things that came to light. Fascinating. So I'm coming from, well, actually, I could identify a little bit with the Methodist background. I kind of was born baptized Methodist. And then my husband is actually a Catholic youth minister. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we do love Mary (laughs) and she's out um, all the time, not just during Advent. Although I, as you were talking, I was like, Ooh, we have very, a a very sanitized version, I would say. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to hear, especially thinking about, I'm imagining a room full of the different artwork and Mm -hmm. teen moms observe it and interpret it and just how different that might be. And maybe even more accurate than our, when I say our, I mean like mostly white Pennsylvania, Roman Catholic. So version version of Mary's. Yeah. I'd be interested to read more of their responses and how that all turned out. So all that to say, how then did that shape your own sort of, was there anything that resonated with you personally, like on a, on a more personal level from your work? Yeah, I think the work was breathed out of my own experiences and identification as a woman of color. Sure. So although I'm not a teen mom or or even a mom, there were still aspects of their marginality that I really wanted to uplift and bring up and kind of bring to light as like, no, this is, you know, I took on the the God's option for the poor, right? Like, this is why they're beautiful. This is why they're amazing. And so for me, that just like solidified my commitment to the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized. It solidified my commitment to women of color. It solidified my commitment to women who aren't seen um, and mm-hmm. children and uh, also children. I, I Part of my focus is children at risk as well. And so, yeah, I, I think for me, it was, it was sort of me living out my experience and then magnified into other people's contexts that, that I was able to bring out hopefully into, into the, at least academic world or into the literature world, mm-hmm. or at least in a, you know, dissertation that will be in a dusty library somewhere. <laughs> 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 we'll see how far it gets out into the rest of the world. Yeah. I'm sure many of our listeners would be, <laughs> would love to read it. I mean, we're women, yeah. women in academia though, is the yeah. majority of our So, you know, that niche of people would, would yeah. enjoy it. Um, <laughs> But yeah, thank you for sharing just the ways that impacted you personally and even just kind of re- reaffirmed your commitment to the marginalized and to women, um, especially women of color. So shifting gears a little bit, you wrote an article several years ago that I found on the internet <laughs> entitled, <laughs> When I Found Out We Were White, and it was for a site called Inheritance. And you share the story of your parents who were immigrants from the Philippines, mm-hmm. applying for their marriage in Greensboro, North Carolina. and being marked as white on the application. Can you share a little bit for our listeners about that story? And then from your perspective, how the story you were told about their experience with race shaped the way you saw yourself growing up? Yeah, so my parents started dating. My mom had come from the Philippines. My dad was already here in San Francisco. He met her with a mutual friend at the airport and they started dating from there in San Francisco airport, essentially. And so he followed her. She was on her way to Greensboro College. This was in the late 60s. And so, you know, we we think of Civil Rights Act, I think was 1965. And then the Immigration Act opened up like 19, the next year, I think 1966. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't quote me on that, but it was around that time. So they actually got married in like 1969 in Greensboro, North Carolina. 
And what happened was they would go up to the clerk and they, the clerk filled out the form. And so really on the ethnicity box, there was only black and white. There was no mm-hmm. other option. And so this part of the story, I think, is really interesting. The first time I heard the story from them, this is how I could have sworn I heard the story. <laughs> they marked, <laughs> I, I swore that they said that they, were, they marked black. And I said, oh, why, why black? I was really curious. And, and what, about, what about approximately what age were you when you... I was not in existence. Oh, when I heard this? Yeah, when you heard the story. Um, by this, this was post-seminary. So I was in my 30s somewhere. Oh, okay. Thirties, yeah. So I'm, I'm carrying this, yeah, this narrative in particular, somewhere in my 30s. <laughs> okay, gotcha. So all the years blur together now. Sure. Um, <laughs> so I, I said, oh, well, why black? And what I remember my mom saying was, well, because we're not white. And mm-hmm. that really like said something to me, right? Like that, that was something of like, oh, even from the very beginning of my existence, we weren't white. And I, you know, I would, I, I would speak at youth camps and we had some kids from North Carolina there and kids from Greensboro in particular. And it was a point of pride for me. I said, you know what? I, according to Greensboro, North Carolina, I'm of African-American descent from the South, you know, and I, you know, that was like my bond, my way of bonding with them. And um, I don't know that they cared, but I, I was <laughs> kind of excited about it. And then later when I went to write this story for Inheritance, it's, it's a, it's a magazine of Asian American stories. Okay. So that, that's essentially what Inheritance is. And so when I wrote the story for Inheritance, I went back to my parents and they said, oh no, the clerk marked white. And then that put me into a whole new tailspin of identity. Mm. And what I realized in writing that was, oh, I, I actually don't get to be in that binary. I really am not part of the black-white binary when we talk about race because we weren't black is, is really why we got marked white. And right. so in 1969, if you're not marked black, there's a very different way that African-Americans were treated um, and ha- continue to be treated than other people of color. And my mom would say, oh, yeah, they didn't treat us poorly. They just didn't see us. So they would mm-hmm. go to church and the pastor would just look right through them. Usually as you leave the church, you can shake hands with the pastor and they would want to shake hands with the pastors of the couple of churches they visited. And the pastors would act like they just weren't there. Hmm. And, and so not being white and not being black, whichever box we marked, I realized, oh, there's something about being in this gray area that is a whole other identity existence. And so that really has shaped me into figuring out how, how do I live in this gray area? And, and part of that means I have some privileges in some ways. I don't worry about some of the things that my African-American friends worry. You know, I was driving one day and I got pulled over and I was with an African-American friend and I, you know, realized I had a different way of responding than she did. And I, that was my privilege to be able to sort of be a little bit more relaxed in that because we really didn't know what was going to happen when I got pulled over. So things like that. But at the same time, even with the privileges, I'm not white either. And so I I will hit against the boundaries and the walls of whiteness because I'm not white and I can't ever be white. And so that gray area is, is, has been a place of exploration of, well, how do I use that to the best of my gifts? I mean, like the women, like Mary, mother of Jesus and her marginality, I still think she brought something tremendous to, to the table. So even in my grayness, in both my privileges and my marginality, what can I bring uniquely to sort of the Christian sphere in order to, 
to help us move forward together as a people. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing about that story and just the way that it's shaped you and even continues to shape and transform who you are Mm -hmm. and how you live out who God's called you to be. Related, I recently read this quote and it's by, I'm going to probably mispronounce the name, Paulo Freire that says, no, uh, do you know? (laughs) Yeah, Brazilian. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh (laughs) Okay, great. Paulo Freire. So anyway, that says, no one goes anywhere alone, even those who are physically alone. We carry with us the memory of many fabrics, a self soaked in our history and our culture. With your PhD, then in intercultural studies, I'm curious about your response to this quote, both on an academic level and on a more personal level. I love this quote. This is this is the first time I read it, but it's beautiful. I think one of the things between my studies and right, I, I do I study culture. My my degrees in missiology, and essentially, really, what that has been over the years is how do white people enter into contexts of non-white spaces, um, mm-hmm. and and that ends up being what missiology has been by and large. There has been conversations around missiology being from everywhere to everywhere but the literature hasn't caught up with it. So in in action and in literature, we're still talking about white people in non-white spaces. The distinction that I've seen is, you know, Western Western white culture in general tends to be more individualistic, while a lot of the rest of the global world is more communal. And so this idea of that we are not physically alone and the memories of who we are, I've really started to embrace more my ancestors in, in missiology, that, that's always a, a conversation, right, of sort of folk theologies and ancestor worship and other things like that. And how does that get, how do you interact with that from a Christian perspective? And what is is Christianity at that point, right? Like, are we just bringing in colonized theologies and eradicating right. things like ancestor worship where that's been deeply embedded in other cultures for a long time? So I've been rediscovering what it means for me to walk with my ancestors. and. Some of that is, oh, I have 400 years of colonization that my ancestors have endured, and I need to figure out what does that mean for me today? I walk with that all the time. And so even as I'm thinking about post-colonial work, even as I'm thinking about my, my place in the bi- black-white binary, et cetera, I walk with 400 years of ancestors. And before that, I mean, I can't even fathom, I'm still trying to fathom what were Filipinos like before the Spanish colonized us? Um, yeah. So the Spanish colonized us for 350 years. Americans colonized us for at least 50 more years and culturally continue to colonize us for longer. And so what does that mean? And I don't walk alone in any of it, right? Like, so it's Bill Dernis. I use this in some of my research. Bill Dernis has been doing research on Zapatistas and he brings out what he calls imminent history. And the Zapatistas walk with their imminent history, which is like, they can't see things in the world without seeing their ancestors along with it. So they go with their communities, they go with their relationships, they go with their history, and that's how they see the present. So, mm. you know, if you pick up a cup, it's sort of like everyone picks up a cup, right? It's, it's not you, the individual, because we don't operate like that. And so I, I love this quote because it, it speaks to some of that imminent history that I think really there's something that resonates deeply with me that I've been wrestling with and really reveling in. I've, I've been, it, I feel a more whole me, the more I embrace that I do not go alone. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. This quote, actually, um, I came across it in my grad school work. It's in a book entitled Genograms, which is mm-hmm. essentially 
in the context of mental health counseling. So sort of the study of our families and, and how our families are with us and then family not necessarily being defined by just blood relatives, but yeah. whoever. So anyway, I, I found it to be a really interesting quote as well and wanted to get your perspective on it. So in our class, we have to write a, or create a genogram of our family, just going back, uh, I think, mm-hmm. three, three generations, which really... Mm-hmm isn't very much. And, but even still, like just those three generations, it's just packed with stories. Like mm-hmm. each person has their story and e- the way that, you know, th- three generations before me shaped who I am now. Fascinating to put it out on paper and, mm-hmm. and really kind of get a sense of a little bit more, I guess, of my story. But I hear, I hear what you're saying too about on that. And I'm coming at it, I think in some ways from a very individualistic Western perspective. And so I appreciate too thinking about just even more of a, that communal sense of the, the cup image is really profound in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, it, and it's not even just, it is generational, certainly. Um, but I also go not just back, but I go wide. And right, so yeah. in, my, in my family, right, there's my extended family easily, you know, for Thanksgiving or Christmas, we can have 60 people. So my, you know, a small intimate gathering of, you know, cousins or something could at least be 20 to 30 of us. Yeah. Um, so that's, I, I go, like when I, you know, I was kind of doing the acknowledgements and whatever for my dissertation and I realized, wow, I, I have a lot of investors in mm-hmm. this degree. I did not do this at all by myself. I did this with a, a large community, a large family, extended family. And then because I'm sort of here in Pasadena on my own, I've created more family around me because I need to have the village around me. So, you know, where I don't have my natural family with me, then I've created villages around me. I don't see this PhD as mine alone in any way. I I have done this with my village, with my barangay, as you say in in Tagalog. Mm. Yeah. There's a real, man, I I really love that aspect of, of being, being able to embrace my Filipino-ness in that way of, yeah, if we go as a village, there's a strength and a power to it that is just really unmatched than, you know, versus what one person can do as an individual. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then so uh, kind of connected to that image of just having people over for Thanksgiving or any holiday uh, in our correspondence prior to this interview, you mentioned your affinity for delicious food (laughs) And with that, your interest in developing what you called a potluck theology as a intercultural ministry. So I also deeply love food. My husband often teases me about that. Most of my childhood memories, and the good ones, I should say, involve food. Like I can remember what I was eating at my best friend's birthday party when I was four. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) like kind of ridiculous. Um, Maybe I didn't get fed enough. I don't know. sensory thing. I don't know. But anyway, uh, I'm curious about your idea about the potluck theology. And maybe that's not related to food really at all. (laughs) Um, But more of a metaphor. Okay. Yeah, please share about it. I'm curious. Yeah. Um, I actually just preached this at at our chapel service at Fuller Chapel. So it's it's pretty fresh in my mind. So yeah, I, I love food. I think part of it is when I moved to San Francisco, they take food so seriously there, just as a city and as a culture. And so I started realizing how much my culture and food also connected. Hmm. And so in my family, like I said, there, there's, you know, a gathering could be 60 people pretty easily. 
And so when we do potluck, we, we bring our best dishes to the table. Uncle Dan will Thanksgiving or Christmas, he'll always bring the turkey. And then Auntie Cecil will bring her fresh lumpia, which is a sort of an egg roll wrap. Cindy will bring her sausage stuffing. And, you know, my mom will bring her pancit, which is a Filipino noodle dish. And so everyone brings their best to the table, right? And as you can imagine, if there's like how many of us, and there's at least 30 dishes on the table, it's a feast every time. And so we all partake of everyone's joy, right? Like, and it's our love language to each other. Bringing our best to the table is our nonverbal way of saying, I love you. I care about you. I, I want you to have my best, right? So even for me, they, they always relegate me to mashed potatoes because I'm not that great of a cook, but I will do, you know, 20 pounds of mashed potatoes is no small thing. And then I'll make sure there's a vegan option and a, you know, all the other things, but I'll do, I'll put all that I am into mashed potatoes because that's my love language, you know, to the rest of the family. Anyway, all that to say is we bring our best. And then I went to my first non-family, non-Filipino potlucks. And I was like, what? I, you know, someone would bring like a package of Oreos or like, you know, like a Costco roast chicken or something. I was like, oh, I love those things. But like, if we're honest, those are the easiest things that you can bring, right? And I realized like, oh, a lot of other potlucks that I was part of were about bringing the easiest thing to the table. Mm. And so my theology around that was, it actually was a multicultural ministry idea. But, you know, if we brought our best to the table every time and not the most convenient or the thing that we're used to or the thing, our feast would look very different. But there's a, a level of scarcity that sort of that people operate in when they come in with sort of the easiest and quickest. Um, And then there's a a, a theology of abundance that happens when we bring our best. And so it's like, what are we operating out of to begin with? And what are we sharing and partaking of? In order to enjoy the richness of the diversity of the table, no one can expect that their dish is the main dish. Once you think that your dish is the main dish, that makes all the other dishes side dishes or like accompaniments. And it relegates them to a smaller status. Or, you know, even if you physically just bring a dish that's too big, then that means that there's not space on the table for anyone else's dish. And maybe they have to be in a completely different room because your dish took up the whole space. Or there's people who, I get this to a degree, but I, I try to encourage my friends who tend to be picky eaters to try something that they haven't tried and not just to sort of shut out from the looks or the idea of it, but to just try it. But you have to have this openness to trying other dishes, right? Trying other people's things, because that's how we transform and expand our palates and expand our understanding. And unless we're able to do that, then we just stay with the same thing and the same flavor and the same taste, and we don't grow. Our palates stay the same, our theology stay the same, our worldviews stay the same, because we're only willing to stay in the lane that we're comfortable with and have been taught. And so, yeah, the the theology kind of goes far and wide for me in terms of, you know, how it connects to our ecumenical lives together, how it connects to our theological lives together. And so, you know, I did a blog, I wrote a blog on decentering whiteness through potluck, right? And I was like, yeah, I think that's one way of doing it is how do we share the table? We don't need to eradicate your dish or, you know, whatever, but like, how do we just make room for other people's dishes and enjoy the whole feast? Yeah, that's the nutshell. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's a lot to think about too. I mean, it's a metaphor, but it's also not a metaphor. Yeah, thank you for sharing about that. Yeah. 
I, I mean all of that literally as well too. Yeah. Like, I do. I love food and I love trying everyone's, yeah, everyone's dishes. Yeah. Right. And then on the metaphorical le- level of it as mm-hmm. well with the theology and yep. uh, you know, do I have an openness to receive someone else's yeah. uh, way of connecting with Jesus, uh, somebody else's, I don't know, you know, you yeah. could go on and on thinking about just, it's the openness though, I think. And even just the the part about, you know, when you think your dish is the main dish, Ooh, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like, so if uncle Dan brings the turkey, someone else will bring the prime rib and someone else will bring the salmon. So right. it's like, even if you have a big dish, it doesn't, it may not be the main one. It may be one of many main ones. And that's a humbling thing to realize. But when Absolutely. you're feeding 60 people, we can handle that. <laughs> so shifting gears again, you taught a class recently on women and mission, women from historical, biblical, and cultural perspectives. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular woman from history or from the Bible who you resonate with the most or by whom you feel like especially inspired? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're ending the quarter. We're on our last class next week with this class. And it's been an amazing class. We've had some very sacred moments with one another, kind of realizing the stories of women that don't usually get sort of playtime in the classroom. So one of the stories, actually, I, I opened up the class with a devotion on Esther. And Esther's story resonates so well with me in terms of she was prepared you know, she went through a time of preparation, she was positioned, and then she was purposed. And all of that was always about, not just about her. The, the story is, is her being prepared and positioned and purposed for her people. You know, she was able to move into a, a place where she could save her own people. Essentially, she was an undocumented person, and, and they didn't know who she was until later. Right. And so that whole narrative to me of this truly marginalized woman who somehow was positioned and purposed for a whole entire group says something to me on on so many different levels. Um, I think it says some, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that I can continue to share that story with others to encourage them. But, you know, it's it's not even just the Esters though, right? Like Wilda Gaffney, her womanist midrash book is, I love that book because she does such a great job of claiming the unnamed woman. And so she brings the unnamed women in the Old Testament and to light and just kind of, you know, who were they and what, you know, what was their purpose? Why are they even in this story? Or, or like, oh, we didn't even see them in this story. And so she brings these people to light or these women to light. And, and for me, that's another thing is, is the marginalized unnamed women I care so deeply about. And I, I want to keep pulling their stories out into the light so that we don't forget them and we don't neglect them and we don't operate as if they don't exist because they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the unnamed woman, you know, there's this idea of being, they're able to be seen, right? When we pay attention, look into it. And isn't it, is it Tamar who is the first Mm -hmm. to name God and calls Mm -hmm. him the God who sees? So, Hagar. Oh, Tagar, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Like you yeah. See Thank that. you for like, correcting me. What a, yeah. what a powerful imagery for Hagar to go, you know, that she was raped and abused in the name of God, in the name of God's purposes, right? Hagar was, was taken and yeah, but God sees her like, ah, oh, so, and she named, like she had the agency to name God. Like that's amazing. I love that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
Well, okay. Also related to some of your academic work, you noted working on beginning to develop, uh, well, you kind of already talked about this a little, uh, post-colonial Protestant Filipino-American theology (laughs) alongside some other Filipino colleagues. So you you kind of not really, you didn't fully talk about it yet, but just sort Mm -hmm. of alluded to it earlier. Can you share a little bit more about your hope for that work? Yeah, right. It's all integrated my, and it all comes out of my own location as a woman of color, but Filipinos, Asian American Christian literature tends to be about East Asians, mostly Korean and then Chinese. Very few, even though Philippines, the Philippines is the most Christianized nation probably in Asia, at least from the Protestant level, we have sort of the least amount, and not the least amount, but we have very little in terms of sources and resources on, on Christian writing. And so I was at a meeting and I saw five other scholars. Two of us are still were PhD students and three had their PhDs already. And we took a picture together because, you know, we just don't see that many Filipino scholars at that level. And we were so excited. And when I looked at the picture, I realized, oh, this is a holy moment. Like we need to do something. And as I started talking with them and, and as we started trying to dream up what it could look like, I realized if we don't start writing things now as second generation Filipino Americans, Filipino Americans could very well die out into assimilation into the church and and just as if we never existed, right? There's like no documentation at this point that we existed and and our spirituality and our faith and our who we are. I mean, psychology and sociology, there have been some really great writings by Filipino Americans in that Mm -hmm. sense. And yet we're very christianized culture but we don't have any writings or very few writings on the christianization of filipino americans and so that's what our group is trying to do we're we're just in the exploratory stage right now we're just actually getting to know each other like that's how preliminary we are but we're looking at different grants and things that will help us do that collaborative research and Jay Katunis in, in chicago and neil pressa and rachel bondong in the bay area and uh Melissa Borja in, in Michigan, they're, they're all scholars focusing on completely different things, but I think we all bring something to the table in terms of our own experiences and identity, but are also our own fields of disciplines. Like Melissa's not a religious studies person, she's a historian, I believe. And so she brings something completely different to the table, which is wonderful because we need that as a group. And so, yeah, that's, I, I really, really feel strong about wanting to make a mark or wanting to say, hey, we exist and this is who we are so that we can shape ourselves going forward. Because if we don't do it now, my third generation nieces and nephews may not have anything to hold on to in terms of their own Filipino American theology. And it'll be harder and harder as the generations go to grasp that and to take ownership of that without markers that we can make now. Right. Yeah. And that you're in some ways creating a gift for them or for mm-hmm. generations to come, to be mm-hmm. able to look back and read and hear the stories or just mm-hmm. even the, the rich heritage that they're yeah. coming from. I figure, you know, even if I'm wrong or even if someone disagrees with whatever I write, then at least we're talking. Because sure. right now we're not, we're not even talking about Filipino-American theology. And so I just want to, you know, get things out there and get people talking. It's like, oh, great. At least we have a place to have a conversation. So... I think there's there's a deep need. It just now I have I, I need to steward my degree and steward my position and place um, where I'm at right now and and be able to use that well for my brothers and sisters. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And again, that idea of the village kind of coming together, everyone with their, their dish to mm-hmm. offer, mm-hmm. Uh, working in collaboration. So yep. yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what you come up with. Maybe, you know, five, <laughs> five years from now, I don't know how long. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Five years from now, but yeah. probably, hopefully sooner. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, yeah. Well, is there, is there anything else that you'd like to share about that I haven't known to ask? That's a great question. No, you did such a great job asking really <laughs> wonderful questions. I mean, as you can see, I think I'm very um, intersectional, but yet, and it seems a little different. I, I write about youth ministry. I write about Asian American and Filipino American things. I write about children at risk and, and women on the margins. And yet those are all me. And so everything that I am aiming to write and everything I have written on and things that I have preached on and spoken on in, in other spaces, I can't separate my womanness, my Filipinoness at all. Like all of it is always combined together. But no, I think <laughs> I, I have a feeling out of this conversation that integration's been, yeah, you've, you've kind of heard it from, from all the different questions that you asked. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, in some ways, if you just list it out, all the things that you're passionate about or are areas of giftedness. It sounds like random assortment. Um, kind of all <laughs> right. But really, you know, even as we've had this conversation, I'm like, oh my goodness, yes, yeah. of course that connects with that. Yeah. Even uh, potluck. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> totally. So yeah, two more questions then to conclude. One, what is the book that you've gifted most frequently to people? Well, it depends on who it is. So Here's, sure. If it were to other Filipino Americans, it would be Carlos Belusan's America is in the Heart, which is his story, his sort of autobiography of immigrating in the early 1900s to the United States and his kind of coming as a schoolboy and then working in the fields and things like that. It, it gave me some different insight into my parents' own immigration stories, even though they came a lot in, in a different wave. But it's just a beautifully written book. If it were to students right now, I, yeah, Wilda Gaffney's Womanist Midrash. There's also Latina Evangelicas, written by three authors, Elizabeth Connie Fraser. Oh gosh, and the other two are slipping my mind right now. But Latina Evangelicas, I think, is a, a beautifully written book on Latina theology. So those two are, are the ones that I keep telling people they need to read. I think part of it is because what is on the typical seminary syllabus doesn't always include those stories. It doesn't always include women of color stories. And so I think those two books in particular just do really well in stretching our own academic work in terms of understanding women and the intersections of women of color. Great. Thanks. Yeah. And we'll link to those in the show notes. Mm, Thank you. People want to go purchase them or go to the library. Mm -hmm. So I wonder though, will the library have those? I mean, I guess it depends on where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, maybe. I was just going to... Amazon will. Yeah. Amazon will have it at least. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to get into deep thoughts about mm-hmm. libraries and Fair. Yeah. limitations. <laughs> Although you can request, right? You can go to mm-hmm. your library, request a book, and then maybe they'll buy it and then other yep. people can read it. Yep. Anyway, libraries. So finally, <laughs> we like to invite our guests to conclude with a quote or scripture or other set of words that have been particularly meaningful lately. So what words would you offer us as we close? In my research, I did write one article called Can Filipino Americans Be Postcolonial While Still Living in the Colonizer's House? And in that research that I did, I found a version of the Lord's Prayer written just after they were colonized. 
And so it was the very beginnings of the Roman Catholic of the Spanish colonization. And so I love it because it still has the nuances of Filipino culture embedded in the Lord's Prayer. And so I wanted to end with that. And this is how it's translated. I, I won't say okay, it, yeah. but I'll, I'll do the translated version. Our Father, you are in heaven. Make your name be worshipped. Make your kingdom come home to us. Make your most authentic relational self be followed here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily rice. And we release our sins as we are completely indifferent within our most authentic relational self to the sins of those who sin against us. Do not leave us so we are not overcome by temptation, but deliver us from every evil. Amen. In the name of Jesus. Mm, beautiful. Would you mind sharing it in the in the original as well? Oh, sure. Reading okay. it in the original? Yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> I'll try. I haven't okay. practiced this, but I'll, I'll do what I can. Please forgive me if anyone knows how to pronounce these words much better than me. Amanamin nasa langit ka, pasamba mo ang nangalan mo. Muisa amin ang pagkahari mo. Yapasunod mo ang loob midito. Salupa parang sa langit. Bigyang mo kami ngong ngang aming kakanin para nang para nang sa araw-araw. At pakolin mo ang gaming kasalanan. Yalang iwalan bahala namin sa loob. Ang kasalanan ng nagkakasaya sa amin. Huwag mo kami uiwan nang di kami metalo ng tukso. Tatapuot, idya mo kami sa dilan masama. Amen, Jesus. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you so much for taking the risk there and... <laughs> As a Filipino American who doesn't speak very much Tagalog, that was really <laughs> risky. But yes, that's as well, close as I could get. I appreciate it. It's, it was beautiful to hear it in <laughs> close to the original, right? So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much, Joyce, for sharing your time with us. And it's been such a fun and meaningful conversation. And how can people connect with you? Where can they find you if they want to learn more from you or read your work? Sure. I am working on revamping my website, but I have joycedelrosario.com, J-O-Y-C-E-D-E-L-R-O-S-A-R-I-O.com. And my blog, The Esther Salon, is on there. And then I'll also have some podcasts and sermon samples on there as well. And some of my writing that's available online, including the Inheritance Magazine, one that you referred to. Oh, yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, and Praying Filipino on Twitter as well. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks, Joyce. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trisick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. 
Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.